You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Well, hello and welcome to the program. If life indeed is a highway, the Ontario government would like you to travel on a new one. Because today, the announcement that they will again look at the environmental assessment of a possible Toronto area West Highway corridor. Now, let's, before you get all excited and get revved up, we're talking environmental assessment stage here. So we're a ways off from the asphalt being laid. The environmental assessment was suspended back in 2015 by the previous government. But today, the Minister of Transportation said it is back on. Here's Jeff Urich on where this thing will go. It's going to go uh, from around the Highway 400 down to the Highway 407, uh, cutting through there. And uh, we haven't made a decision on whether or not it'll be told or not. I think that's a little early to decide. But uh, as we go through the environmental assessment process and decide uh, here from consultation from people in the province, uh, uh, there'll be a decision whether or not it'll be told or not. So to- new toll roads are a possibility in this province? Certainly are. Certainly are. Toll roads are a possibility in this province. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is no laughing matter. Aha, Moving on to your driver license fees. And you heard in the news that they are about to go up less than a year after being frozen by the Ontario provincial government. Now, the Minister of Transportation making this point, that the previous government attempted to change the fees so they are cost recovery, and that's a fancy way of saying they pay for themselves. And I think a lot of people believe that if you were going to have a fee system for licenses, then that fee system should pay for the licenses, and that should not come out of general revenue. And especially if you're, you know, a hipster, fixie-riding bicycle enthusiast, you're thinking to yourself, why should my tax dollar go towards subsidizing drivers? It doesn't seem to make sense. So that's what the government, the previous Liberal government, was doing, and it was hiking fees pretty quickly, pretty aggressively. That's the... The, the reason that the PCs give for freezing and now considering to unfreeze later on this year, by July the 1st, the government is going to decide what it's going to do with your license fees. And I want to play a little bit more of Jeff Burek here on what is under consideration. We haven't uh, specified what exactly will be increased, but there's over 77 fees uh, that Ministry of Transportation uh, has linked to this proposal. So uh, what we are going to do is try to uh, minimize impact to the majority of the public and ensure that uh, uh, if fees do increase that uh, it's, uh, it is affordable. And what we're doing is ensuring that we can continue to provide the services the Ministry of Transportation does provide in this, this province. I'm sorry, am I witnessing a reasonable rollout of a Ontario government plan? Is this what's happening here? Because first the Raptors win the NBA championship, and now this. I'm just I'm just knocked sideways. I can't but obviously Jeff Urich has been one of the stalwarts of this government in terms of being able to communicate pretty clearly the reason why the government will raise fees and the reason why it froze them just a year ago. Are you looking for high-quality health care? This is moving on to health care 
news. And more than 400 health care sector workers are being laid off in Ontario as the progressive conservative government moves to merge 20 agencies into one. A spokesman for the health minister, Christine Elliott, says 416 people in back office positions will lose their jobs. Another 409 vacant positions will be eliminated. The province is consolidating 14 local health integration networks, LINS, you know that name, Cancer Care Ontario, eHealth Ontario, and other agencies, all of them, go into a new organization known as Ontario Health. The government projecting the change will save $350 million a year. Now, this kind of goes in complete opposite direction from the repeated promise from the Ford government, the somewhat baffling promise that they seem to not want to back away from, and that is that nobody's going to lose their jobs. Travis Danraj is uh, Global's Queen's Park Bureau Chief, broke this story this morning and joins me on the line. Hi, Travis. Hey there, Alan. Uh, So can we finally put this nobody's going to lose their job thing to bed? You know, it it, it is so interesting because the the premier campaigned repeatedly. Uh, He tweeted in the debates, he said that on his watch, not a single person would lose their job. Clearly, that has not been the case. Uh, But you you don't see any movement on the position from the Premier. He says that, you know, these are efficiencies, and he isn't backing away from the fact that no one's going to lose their job, despite the fact that people are losing their jobs. There's, you know, over 400 people today, as you just mentioned, got pink slips. What is the impact on the actual delivery of health care services because of these changes and the eliminations of these jobs? So the health minister, Christine Elliott, who we will have an interview with tonight on Global News, says uh, essentially that this is merging administration. This is finding efficiencies and, and uh, getting rid of uh, duplicated tasks in backroom offices. And then uh, the money that they save, or $250 million annually, they say, is going to be redirected to patient care. So they say essentially this is taking money out of administration, it's administrative costs and putting it towards frontline care. They also note that no doctor, no nurse, uh, no frontline worker is going to lose their job as a result of this merger into Ontario Health. Uh, what's the opposition, as if I can't imagine, what is the opposition saying in response? Well, I mean, essentially they're saying that the Premier lied. The Premier campaigned on a promise that no jobs would be lost. The Premier uh, campaigned on a promise that health care wouldn't be affected and that uh, as a result of these cuts, you are going to see, uh, you know, patients battling with cancer, uh, uh, patients that are are in desperate need of care affected. By this, even though these are administrative tasks, at least that's what they're saying, uh, that healthcare, frontline care will be affected. Travis Damaraj is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Toronto, and you can see his story on this issue tonight on Global News at 5.30, simulcast here on this radio station at 6 p.m. Travis, always great to have you on. Thanks, Alan. I want to quickly remind you that you are having a good day. And the reason I'm telling you that you're having a good day is because when you put it in comparison to this next story, you will say, now I'm having a good day. Out of St. Louis, authorities say a woman was trapped in a St. Louis jail stairwell 
for more than two days after not understanding how to get out of the building. The corrections commissioner said the woman didn't appear to be suffering when she was found and refused to go to a hospital. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch said the woman was leaving the Justice Center after being arrested when she went through a fire exit door which caused all doors on all floors to lock. Although she made noises, the staff could not find her because she moved from floor to floor. She finally was found two days later looking through one of the windows of the doors. So regardless what kind of day you're having, you are not locked in a stairwell in a jail. It is just so beautiful and green and lush throughout the city. It has, of course, been a cool and wet beginning to the season. And now everything, the canopy on the city is just popping. And if you uh, looked at any of those shots, those chopper shots of the massive celebrations on Monday, if you look beside the crowds of hordes of people, there's quite a bit of greenery. And if you ever get a chance to get up and above this city, you'd be blown away by just how green it is, especially at this time of the year. But that also comes with some problems. Because canopy management is a real thing for cities. If the canopy gets too heavy, then a windstorm or an ice storm can cause absolute havoc. We have seen this in this city and what it means. Obviously, if the city is too denuded... That has an impact on our air quality. It has an impact on our quality of life. Well, in King City, I can tell you this. There is unrest in the forest. There is trouble with the trees. Thank you, Getty. There is unrest with the forest. There is trouble with the trees in King City, where council has approved unanimously a staff report proposing a draft tree bylaw. Now, this draft bylaw will apply to any healthy tree that is more than 20 centimeters in diameter, and you measure these at breast height. This is I, so you basically what you got to do is you got to walk up to the tree and just rub your chest against them, and that's where you measure. I would get me to do it because I'm six two, so the higher up, the less the diameter. You see the point there. Uh, so this is going to be. Coming into King City, now compare this to Toronto, where a permit is required to remove, cut down, or in any other way injure a tree with a diameter of 30 centimeters. And that's about the thickness of a telephone pole, just to give you some some bit of an idea. Uh, and this applies to all trees on land use, including single-family residential properties. In other words, you just can't cut down the tree in your front yard. Shane Goldman is with the Tree Doctors and joins me on the line. Hi, Shane. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How frustrating is it for your clients and for homeowners who want to get rid of a tree? Well, that's uh, <laughs> that depends on the 
that depends on the client. Um, the city of Toronto in particular, if a tree is in poor condition, it's pretty easy for us to get a permit. Um, there's a bit of a delay. Uh, four to six weeks is usually the time it takes to, to hear back from forestry. Sometimes they're great and we hear back in a week. Um, so there is some delay in between us coming out inspecting a tree, creating a report, getting to the tree removal stage. If it's not a healthy tree, the, the permit's granted 99% of the time. Um, it's the cases where you have a healthy tree where there's no, it's not doing property damage. Um, you know, it's something that could stay there over the long term. It might be an inconvenience for the homeowner because leaves are ending up in their eaves trough or they don't want to have to do the the cleanup every year um, or it's providing too much shade. Those are the cases where homeowners have more difficulty getting a permit. Did you chop down this tree? Uh, no. And so that leads you to some tough times because here I can tell you this, for example, I used to live in a home in the beaches and the big, beautiful tree out front which when I bought the house was in bloom, I thought it was, wow, wow, look at that. Uh, It turned out to be a crabapple tree. And so every August, I would spend every day uh, hoovering up apples, and if I didn't, there would be nests and swarms out there. And I I figured I couldn't get rid of it. So, I I mean, what's a homeowner to do? So, okay, it's, it's interesting that you brought up apple trees, because this is one of the things that I would like to see with, the, the city of Toronto bylaw in particular is not terribly nuanced. And actually, most of the GTA tree bylaws don't make special rules for trees with well-known problems. Um, if anybody listening has a Manitoba maple, they would love for that tree to be exempt from the tree bylaw because they're very fast-growing, they're weedy, um, it's it's one of the more common ones that we see with storm damage. Um, they're they're very rot prone, so it would be nice to see some of the bylaws be a little bit more nuanced towards specific trees or trees within maybe a certain distance from a from a building with a foundation. Um, City of Toronto actually makes some allowances for crab apples in particular. I know you can actually get a permit. Um, it's it's a bit of a different process so you'd have to find an arborist who has some experience dealing with it the crab apple in particular because it's messy the you know if it's by a walkway the apples get slippery it, it's it's a little bit of a hazard um the city's sometimes a little less precious with with those trees Shane Goldman is with the Tree Doctors, and we're talking about tree canopies and this. There is unrest in the forest. There is trouble with the trees. Thank you, Shane. Appreciate you being with us. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. I just can't get enough Getty. You know what I mean? I don't know if you happen to be listening to the program. Uh, it was This was a while ago, and there was an Ontario minister, John Yagubuski, on the program. And we were talking about trees because he's uh, he's Ministry of uh, Natural Resources. And I played that for him and I made a, uh, a Rush joke and he said, I, I've never heard of Rush. And I thought, well, and in your passport, pal, because... Alan, yeah. Alan, please stop crying. 
I want to talk about Canadian companies and tax avoidance. And what do you think? Do you think that Canadian companies, those major multinationals, the, the big ones, you know, the banks, that sort of thing, do they pay their full share of their corporate tax bill? Well, a new report out says that Canadian companies avoided paying up to $11.4 billion worth of taxes that they should have, and that is in the single tax year of 2014. This is according to the Canada Revenue Agency. So if big companies avoided paying anywhere between $6.7 billion and $7.9 billion in those years, what are we doing about it? Is this a crisis? Sonia Dollarwall is Assistant Professor of Accounting at the University of Guelph. Hello, and welcome to the program. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Does Canada have a rampant problem with tax avoidance on the corporate level? I would not say so. And before we discuss uh, the CRA's report, I just want to put some context around it, that uh, the numbers that have been presented in the report they are basically estimates, as, are, as is mentioned in the report, and the way that the numbers have uh, been derived is that they took a particular year, as you've mentioned, and um, did random audits. The results from those audits then were extrapolated um, towards the whole population. So there are certain issues uh, just surrounding that. First of all, uh, you know, anytime we're dealing with a sample, the sample may or may not be representative to an entire population. So we do need to keep that um, in mind and also that this data, you know, does re- relate to one particular year. So the trends could be certainly different in uh, other years. When we talk about tax avoidance, are we talking about malfeasance and deliberate avoidance at the corporate level? Um, well, the the way that this report has been done is they focus in particular um, on non-compliance um, related to basically people who, first of all, file their tax returns. And by people, I'm referring to corporations in this particular report. Um, as per the Income Tax Act, you know, the definition of a person is defined and corporations are included in there. So they're dealing with corporations who've actually filed their tax return. Uh, there could certainly be other non-compliance from non-filers. So that, this report does not look at that. So when we look at non-compliance and, you know, how that arises in this particular um, uh, report, you know, they talk about that the issues could be um, non-reporting of, you know, certain income um, or even arising from errors. It could be, you know, uh, deductions that corporations may not have been entitled to. Again, that we, um, is an issue that's been pointed out, but uh, also could relate to errors. Now, here I also do want to bring into um picture the complexity of the Canadian tax system. So, again, this report looks at and breaks down this overall result into two categories. So they looked at not just the large corporations, but the second category was small to mid-sized enterprise. Um, So the, you know, 9.4 to 11 billion number that's being referred to is a combination of both of uh, those uh, categories. Sonia Dollywall is Assistant Professor of Accounting at the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for being on the program. No problem. Thank you. Interesting stuff. And uh, quickly, I like to do this every once in a while. I open up the business wires, Canada News Wire Services. Now, what that is, it's a service where basically companies put out press releases, and this is where we can access them. And some of them are kind of funny. I I like this one, Uh, Organto. 
an integrated provider of value-added organic vegetables and fruits, today announced that it has begun expanding distribution of organic asparagus to European markets. See, how about that? More asparagus in Europe. Finning Canada, a subsidiary of Finning International, is getting geared up to find the best equipment operator in Canada. For the first time ever, Canada will be taking part in the Caterpillar Global Operator Challenge. Finning is excited to take part in this global competition that will challenge our Canadian operators to find out if they have what it takes to be the best in the world. Is you win or is you win? Everybody's got their own reality TV show now, you know? It's not the greatest chef now, now it's the greatest operator. Who can drive that caterpillar? One more, I like this one. This one's from Indochino. The global leader in custom apparel has announced an exclusive multi-year deal with basketball star and top NBA draft prospect R.J. Barrett. Indochino's first signature NBA athlete, Barrett will be running a series of campaigns including an exclusive R.J. Barrett collection of custom apparel and customized hand-picked to coincide with his 2019-2020 NBA season debut. Now, Barrett is a Toronto native and a member of the Canadian Senior Men's National Team. He has yet to play a single game in the NBA, but he's going to look good. I had a little nuts tree, nothing would but a silver nutmeg and a golden pear The king of Spain's daughter came to visit me And all for the sake of my little nut tree Out of New York, a story that I don't think has surprised anyone It works in the news business as anyone who works in television Five anchor women at a New York City news channel have now sued their company, saying they were marginalized and cast aside to make room for younger women and men. The lawsuit filed Wednesday in a Manhattan federal court against Charter Communications on behalf of the women who work at NY1, known, of course, as New York One. A charter spokeswoman says the company taking these allegations seriously but has found no merit to them. Maureen Huff, the spokesperson, says New York One is a, quote, respectful and fair workplace and works to ensure its employees are valued and empowered. The lawsuit seeks unspecified damages and a return to the positions the women occupied before Charter took control of New York One in 2016. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Have you heard the name Anne Innes Degg? Is that familiar to you? No? How about Jane Goodall? Oh, there's a name you recognize. Dag's significance is frequently distilled to the Goodall comparison. It was actually a Toronto native who set the trend. Before she was famous for studying chimpanzees, that's Goodall. Anne Innes Dag, 23, went by herself to Africa in 1956. She's credited as the first Westerner to do extensive field research there. Jane Goodall's name is familiar to us all, but why do we not know about this other woman? She is now the subject of a new award-winning documentary, and that's raising her profile. Here is the trailer for The Woman Who Loves Giraffes. 
It takes an explorer's heart to go and study animals in Africa in the 1950s as a single woman. This was a different world then. There wasn't the infrastructure, there were no mobile phones, there was nothing. No one had ever really studied a, an African animal in the wild, or pretty well any animal in the wild. So um, I was sort of breaking ground without realizing it. The director of that documentary joins us now on the line, Alison Reed. Hello. Hi, Alan. Thank you so much for being on. What got you interested in this woman, and did you know of her and her research before you began this? Well, no. Um, it was new to me. I found about, out about Anne um, from a radio documentary that was on CBC um, called The Ideas Program, and I was just captivated by her story and thought, why why don't we know about this woman? I'd love to know more about her, and I read her book. Um, she'd written a book about her pioneering um, journey to South Africa, and that book is called Pursuing Giraffe. So when I read the book, I thought, this is this is incredible. Uh, we must make a film about it. So I approached Anne, and she was uh, kind enough to uh, to let me uh, let me make this film. And in the journey of this film, what did you discover about her and how she feels about the fact that you know? Others have grabbed the limelight, and, and she really was somewhat passed over. Well, um, it's funny. Anne's a really modest woman. She's tenacious and adventurous and and highly accomplished. Um, and I think she would have been very happy to be recognized for the groundbreaking science that she did. And, of course, uh, when she got back from Africa after doing this groundbreaking work, um, the wall of discrimination she faced in academia basically destroyed her career. So I, I think that she would have very much liked to have been recognized earlier for that. Um, but since the film has come out, um, her profile has raised uh, quite a lot in the public. I mean, the giraffe community always knew about Anne because she had she had written a textbook, the, the a book that they call the Bible of giraffes. So although Anne had profile in that giraffe community, because she'd been um, absent from it for so long, she had no idea of her profile. And um, the, the story of the documentary is sort of her, her rediscovery and reemergence into the, into the giraffe world. What is it that the general public doesn't know about giraffes that, that you discovered in this that you've taken away? Oh, my gosh. They're the most interesting creatures on the planet <laughs> I've come to know. Um, <clears throat> the way they move is is incredible. They have these very long legs, so they have a very specific way of moving. Like if you ever see a giraffe run, they look like they're running in slow motion, but they're actually running very, very fast. They have the largest heart of any land mammal. Um, they have a really um, interesting blood pressure system because they have this big, long neck. Um, uh, when they put their head down to drink, their, their, uh, their system has to keep them from from fainting so um uh, they have the same number of vertebrae in their neck as as us humans do it's just that they're bigger vertebrae um i can go on and on <laughs> we should have ann here she could tell you a lot more about them as well <laughs> well they are fascinating creatures and i i don't think that we understand them or appreciate them i think so much of the focus tends to be on primates because obviously we see somewhat ourselves reflected in those primates Yes, exactly. And that may be one of the reasons that um, 
that Anne didn't didn't get the profile that uh, that Jane got is because you know people you know chimps are you know remind us of ourselves and our cuddly creatures, whereas giraffes are a little a little more alien. Anne Innesdag is the subject of the movie The Woman Who Loves Giraffes. Allison Reed is the director of the film. You can see the film on some of those streaming services right now. Allison, thank you so much for being with us. Yes, can I just say it's it's World Giraffe Day on Friday, this June 21st. I, I had so, no idea there was such a thing. Yeah, so Anne will be at the Toronto Zoo with her daughter um, from 11 till 3 p.m. There'll be some activities happening and a, and a reading from her book, Five Giraffes, at 1.30. And in celebration of World Giraffe Day, we are launching on iTunes. So the film will be available on iTunes. Um, starting on Friday, um, not only is the film available, but there's some uh, bonus extras that have never been seen before. And all this information is on our website, thewomanwholovesgiraffes.com. That is great information. Uh, when Anne is actually at the event, will there be good viewing or will you have to crane your neck to see her? <laughs> oh, no, she'll be mingling. Um, she will be mingling, talking to people, um, um, and uh answering any questions they have about giraffes, and uh, no, she'll, she'll be there. Thank you again, Allison. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Uh, right for now. Yeah, try out a little, little, little giraffe humor. Uh, quickly, I want to take you to Wilmington, Delaware, where court documents say that a Delaware man who has been indicted by federal court for swatting incidents was engaged in a cross-country feud with a man that he'd met on the phone and who had called in hoaxes about him before. You know what swatting is, don't you? That's where you call in a, a fake thing where you say, well, there's down the street from me, you know, there's there's whatever, there's gunfire, and all of a sudden the SWAT team or whatever, you know, ETF shows up, and it's, it's madness. Now, the Delaware News Journal reports the unsealed documents say that this 29-year-old man met another 29-year-old man from New Mexico in a phone chat room in 2013. Then their relationship turned hostile. And investigators say that one of the men made emergency calls pretending to be the other gentleman in incidents that locked down an elementary school in Delaware and also a Walmart. And there were other calls as well. Both are now in federal custody. No swatting. No swatting allowed. In the jungle, spiders crawl, hyenas laugh, giraffes walk tall. The sun rises over tall trees, wakes the jungle. Whose squirrel is that? A story out of Athens, Alabama. An Alabama man has posted a video denying that he fed methamphetamine to his pet squirrel. Police are searching for Mickey Polk on drug and other charges after claiming they found a caged squirrel during a search. Authorities tell news outlets the squirrel was given meth so it would be aggressive. It's an attack squirrel, you see. But the man... Mr. Polk has now posted a video saying, No, I would never give meth to a squirrel. That would be a waste of perfectly good drugs. No, he didn't say it. He said the meth would be fatal to the squirrel. The man also says the squirrel is just simply mean. It's a mean squirrel. It's not on drugs. 
Do you know anybody like that in your life? Yeah, a dude's just mean. He's not on drugs. He's just, he's just mean. Hey, listen, listen. I want my chips with a dip. So bring me that dip. You know what? I don't care about hockey. I don't. And I'm just going to say that right out in, I don't care. I'd be thrilled if the Leafs actually made a run to the Cup. And I'll shout at the television as heartily as I did for my beloved Raptors. But I'm not going to pretend I would be anything more than a bandwagoner for the Buds. Because the truth of the matter is that hockey bores me. I never saw someone say that before, replies Gord Downey, our poet laureate. What was once considered an odd sport to obsess over, the NBA has now bodied the NHL. A flagrant championship foul by the Raptors has put hockey in the sin bin for a major penalty. And those tens of thousands of faces packed into Nathan Phillips Square to fate Van Fleet and company are likely to be elsewhere if the Leafs were ever to repeat the Raptor feat. Did someone say Raptor foot? Raptor foot! Yes, they did. Rick Zamperin is a news anchor on our sister station in London at CHML, and he has written a post on Global saying that the Maple Leafs are now under more pressure than ever to win the Stanley Cup after witnessing the Raptors. Here's my thought as Rick joins us. Hey, Rick. Hey, Alan. How are you? I'm good. Here's my thought, Rick. I, I don't care. If the Leafs were to do it, there would be a giant crowd, sure, but not as big as the one that came out for the Raptors. Well, that's debatable, and I will debate that for one simple reason. And, uh, you know, the, the Raptors are Canada's team. There's only one NBA team in all of this nation uh, after those Grizzlies vacated Vancouver many moons ago. Uh, so there's more of a national appeal for the Raptors, just like when the Blue Jays went on their back-to-back ALCS runs just a few years ago, and of course when they won the World Series in 92-93. (laughs) But let me tell you, if the Leafs ever win on a run like the Raptors did, there wouldn't be that national appeal, because we have the Jets and the Canadians and the Senators and the Oilers and the Flames and the Canucks. And fans of those teams obviously hate the Maple Leafs, and there's many more teams that hate, or fans of teams that hate the Maple Leafs. So I don't think the crowd would be as big. It would be a certain, a, certainly a different kind of crowd. Many more gray hairs. <laughs> Some kids would be there, too. A lot more suits, although they might be dr- not dressed sure. up. But yeah, it would be a much different crowd, that's for sure. I was there in Nathan Phillips Square, right down in the center of it from our broadcast position, and you look through the sea of faces, and it was representative of what Toronto and what the GTA is. I mean, it was extremely diverse. Uh, yeah, a microcosm. It an was. Absolute microcosm. The last time I went to a Leaf game, um, it was pretty pasty. <laughs> Especially in the first 15 to 20 rows. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is. It, let's talk monoculture. Let's talk like it, it looked like 1975 Toronto. Yeah. And you know what? If you're the Maple Leafs, and, and in the blog today at, at globalnews.ca, you can read this. You know, they are under an immense amount of pressure to win the Stanley Cup for the you know the simple reason is they haven't done it in half a century but now that the Raptors have won and, and yeah, the Marlies won and you know Toronto FC won the MLS Cup and the Argos have won a couple of great cups over the last number of years um, 
And we're all saying, yeah, that's nice. Wouldn't it be nice for the Leafs to win the Cup? And wouldn't it be nice for the Raptors to win the Larry O'Brien Trophy? And lo and behold, oh my gosh, the Raptors have won it. Now I think that, that bullseye on the Leafs has gotten a bit bigger and a bit more intense, or a lot more intense, because this drought, especially with the Blues winning the Stanley Cup, and now you know the Leafs are the sole... Uh, you know, uh, in sole possession of that longest drought of 52 years and counting, I think they're going to start to really feel the pressure. Not that they haven't been feeling that over the last number of decades, but now I think it just gets ratcheted up with the Raptors' win. I, I think I, I worry that that pressure, I, I think part of the reason that the Raptors did so well is there was no pressure. I mean, you know, the, there was pressure obviously to get to the finals, but especially at the point when they got to the finals, you know, I think they played with a looseness. And I think that's going to be a problem for the, any Leaf team, no matter who you put on it. I mean, from the moment the puck drops in the first game, people are like, where's the parade going to be? And it's yeah. every year, it's just evergreen. It, you know what? It's unfair to the players at the end of the day because, you know, they, the players in the current roster have, you know, no responsibility for fi- the last 52 years. They might have, you know, responsibility for the last three or four years, fine, but. You know, the fact of the matter is, the, the, yeah, the the intenseness of the pressure on the players on both the Leafs and Raptors is almost night and day. Because even in this playoff run, you know, the Raptors going to beat Milwaukee. Yeah, they, you know, they could. Milwaukee's a very good team. You know, are they going to beat the two-time defending champion Golden State Warriors? Eh, maybe. We don't know. And that pressure wasn't there like it would be for the Leafs in an Eastern Conference final or, uh, you know, uh, uh, in a Stanley Cup final. It would just be so much more difficult to bear for the players and the coaching staff for the Maple Leafs. All right, I'm almost out of time, but here, I'm going to put this on the line. Regular season Raptors game versus regular season Leaf game, which one would you watch? Me personally? Yeah. Maple Leafs. I can't, I can't, I just, uh, for me, I just, it's dull. We just can't hang out then. Unless we bring back picture in picture. <laughs> split, split green, brother. We'll just get two TVs. Everybody, everybody's. We'll just we'll just stream it on, uh, you know, a phone. A couple yeah, of tablets and a couple of brewskis. Buttes, buttes. Now we, now we're talking. Now we can hang. All right. You thank you so much. Uh, that is Rick Zamperin, and you can read his piece on GlobalNews.ca. Thanks so much for being with us. You got it. All right. I am out of runway, which means time to do another job. Anchorman! See you tomorrow. You wanna win Stanley's Cup? Rattafoot!